All right, let's get into our text this morning, which is in Genesis. Uh, We find ourselves studying the life of Abraham, the only man in the Old Testament that's called God's friend. We're in Genesis 12. We're going to begin in verse 10 and end in chapter 13, verse 4. We're going to find there that fearing for his life in Egypt, Abraham asks his beautiful wife Sarah to lie and tell everyone that she is only his sister. The title of our message this morning, Sister Act. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, you're good to us. You speak to us. You've given us your word. But more than your word, Lord, as as marvelous and wonderful as that is, the Holy Spirit is here to teach us from the word. To take the word and reveal to us things that are marvelous and wonderful. Maybe things that we can't even quite fathom and understand, but we can grip in, in the love that you have for us. And so, Lord, we pray that uh, everything that you want to accomplish in showing us Jesus in this word would take place today. And we pray that in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, Amen. One of my favorite lines from The Little Mermaid is when Sebastian says to Ariel, you're under a lot of pressure down here. It's kind of a double entendre, you know, because pressure, you know, circumstances, but also they're way under the sea. It's kind of cool. <laughs> we say it in our family whenever we want to communicate. We're feeling a little stressed from the pressure of certain circumstances. How many of you use movie lines on a regular basis in life? All right. Some of us are cool. <laughs> we all feel pressure from life circumstances. The question is. What do we do to relieve the pressure? Abraham definitely feeling pressure in our text today. Finally, in the promised land, he faced a severe famine. He had a lot of mouths to feed. He decided to relieve the pressure by altering his circumstances. And so he left the promised land he just arrived in and went down to Egypt. Big mistake. He should have stayed in the land, realizing that the famine was a pressure test of his faith. When you and I are in difficult circumstances, the very first thing that comes to mind often is to get out of them, to alter them. It can be a big mistake. Instead, we might want to consider that it is a pressure test of our faith. I'm going to organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, pressure relief should not be sought by altering your circumstances Number two, pressure relief should be sought by sacrificing at your altar. Let's take a look at the whole altering of circumstances in verses 10 through 20 of chapter 12. Abraham was definitely under a great deal of pressure from many circumstances. First of all, his wife Sarah was barren and they were without any children. His father Terah had recently died. He was the head of a rather large household and was responsible for their survival. He was living in the midst of godless, immoral Canaanites who looked upon him with suspicion at best, malice at worst. I wish I could say things were about to improve for him. They were not. And by the way, while we're here, it's not a good idea to try to encourage people who are in difficulties by telling them that things are going to get better. Sometimes things get better. Oftentimes, I've noted things take a turn for the worse. Unless you know for sure that tomorrow's going to be a better day, that there's a great, big, beautiful tomorrow, uh, you know, that's awaiting people, 
It's not a good idea to tell people who are suffering that tomorrow is going to be better. Those of you who have had serious illnesses, maybe have them right now, or chronic conditions, tomorrow isn't a better day. You can have a better attitude. The Lord can minister to you. That's all separate from telling somebody that, hey, tomorrow is going to be better. We want to encourage people. We want to strengthen them. But a lot of times they just need your presence there. They just need the presence of a person who represents to them faith in God, love for them, an understanding that the Lord will make all things work together for good to those that love Him and are the called according to His purposes. Uh, but don't make any false promises that you can't keep and that you're not sure that God is going to deliver on because we live in a fallen world and things oftentimes get worse. Aren't you glad you came? Uh, I had to tell a gal this morning, she asked me if we could talk and I talked with her and I had to say, well, you know, things are bad, uh, but I have to tell you, it sounds like they're going to get much worse. And... Uh, she actually thanked me. I must have been smiling at the time, but it, it just happens. And we, have, we want to tell people it's going to be better. Well, if you want to tell them it's going to be better, it's going to be better in heaven. And that's not exactly what they want to hear. Uh, they just need you to hold their hand through it. Now, verse 10. There was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there, for the famine was severe in the land. Abram is Abraham, as I've been telling you. If you're new here or for the first time, uh, you know that God is going to change his name in a little while. Uh, usually in the text I read what's written there, Abram, but we're talking about the same person, Abraham. After five years of delaying, Abraham had finally obeyed God and moved into the promised land. Now, when I hear promised land, I always think of the children of Israel being promised the land flowing with what? Milk and honey. So there were dairies there and Africanized bees, I guess. And so, but no, there was, it's the land flowing with milk and honey. And so here's Abraham. He's been delaying for five years. God said, get into the land. If I'm Abraham or thinking about Abraham, thinking, man, when I get into the land, get me to some milk rivers and I'm going to find some honey. I, I brought, you know, some crackers of my own from Ur and I'm just going to have a milk and honey feast now that I finally obeyed God and he's brought me into the land flowing with milk and honey. Instead, there was a famine in the land flowing with milk and honey and not just any old famine, a severe famine. Now, God does want to prosper you for your obedience, but not necessarily in a material way. Real prosperity, real wealth is always spiritual in nature. It is knowing God in a deeper, closer, more intimate way. We can, in fact, be rich in faith, but it always requires that our faith be tested in order to come forth as gold. Uh, and so... Uh, God shakes things up in Abraham's life, brings him into the land flowing with milk and honey to face a famine. Uh, and that's what's going to happen to us from time to time as well. And so here's Abraham. He's got a barren wife. He's just suffered a death in his family. He's surrounded by godless idolaters. He's a stranger in the land. Actually, he was holding up pretty well in all of those troubles. He was obeying God. He walked with God in the midst of all of them. In fact, all of those things, none of them kept him out of the land. They finally propelled him into it. And then we read, now there was a famine in the land. Now, while Abraham was already being tried, there came another trial. 
It's a word actually of precise timing. It's God's precise timing. God's dealing with Abraham. Now is the ideal time to test him with the famine. Whatever angels were in charge of the famine, and they're standing there, you know, and God, now, no, not now. Now, no, not now. Now, now is the time. Now, and you know, if you're an angel, it says in the New Testament, angels desire to look into God's dealings with us. They can't figure it out either. And they're probably thinking, okay, I thought you wanted Abraham in the, in the, in the land. I, I, isn't this the land flowing with milk and honey? Yeah, now, now we're going to have a famine. Watch what happens. Now, it could be that Abraham was holding up pretty well in his own strength and that God added weight until Abraham was in a place where his own strength he found insufficient. One author noted, and I quote, Given our talent set, our experience, and our education... Many of us are fairly capable of living rather successfully according to the world standards without any help from God. Now, when I first read that, I thought, well, that's ridiculous. Every Christian knows that they are totally dependent upon God. But the truth is, many times we do believe that we can make it on our own and we just kind of give God lip service uh, or we're trusting in our own resources And you never really know that is true or not until everything is taken away from you and you just have to depend on God. In fact, I was thinking about it this morning even. Most of the books that are written uh, that you can pick up in, in, you know, the more popular Christian bookstores, they're about how to totally nail something so that you've got it wired. Whatever topic it might be, marriage, family, finances, prayer, Bible study. It's like if you, if you understand what's in this book for $15.95 plus the study guide, uh, then you have that area of your spiritual life covered. You know how to answer, uh, you, know, you, know, you know what you should be doing, what you shouldn't be doing, when you should be doing it, and all of that. And I'm not saying that those things don't draw out amazing and important biblical principles, but unless every chapter ends with something like, and you must depend upon God for your very breath as you're reading this and doing this, then it's giving you the false impression that we can kind of do things pretty well on our own. And maybe if there was a complete and utter, you know, destruction Uh, then we would, you know, have to depend upon God. But in the meantime, I've learned the right principles to just kind of make it on my own. And I think what God does in our life is He says, no, you know, Abraham, you're you're doing pretty well. You're showing a lot of, you know, uh, talent there and endurance and patience and all of that. And so I have got to give you a situation in which you have to totally trust me so that I can try your faith and bring it forth as gold. And so Abraham, barren wife, dead father in a weird city, surrounded by enemies, as it were, or strangers, and and God says, yeah, you can handle all that in your own strength, but here's something that you can't handle. There is no food for you and your family. Where are you going to look? Are you going to look to me? Are you going to look to your resources or the resources of the world? And sadly... Abraham would stumble and fall in this trial. His faith would fail. Uh, now, I'm, I'm encouraged by that. Not, you know, I, I don't get encouraged by people's failures in the wrong way. I mean, you shouldn't, when you hear that somebody stumbled, think, oh, right. You know, 
and then repent. I mean, it's not good. But when I look at Abraham, the father of the faith, and I think, okay, this is real. He stumbled. He failed. He's going to recover, and that's as beautiful as anything else. But it encourages me that I don't, I'm never going to be perfect in my Christian life. I like what Charles Swindoll said. I quoted it last week. We take three steps forward and sometimes two steps back. We, I'm not talking about falling into sin or winking at sin or thinking that we can't have victory over sin, but progress in the Christian life can be difficult when God pulls the rug out from under us and says, now where will you turn? And oftentimes we turn to the flesh. We turn to the world. Abraham, there's no mention of a tent or an altar the whole time he's in Egypt. Those are the two objects that are symbols of his walk of faith. No mention of his seeking the Lord on his decision to go to Egypt. He was acting totally on his own, choosing to change his circumstances without any clear leading to do so. Now, I don't want to leave you with the impression that you can never, ever change your circumstances. That would both be untrue and an unnecessary burden for you to bear. What I am talking about are circumstances in your life that you know to be God's sovereign circumstances for you, but you would rather see changed on account of the difficulty of remaining under them. How do you know when your circumstances are a trial to remain faithful in? Well, at least one way is to go back to God's last instructions to you. If Abraham had done that, here's what he would have discovered. It's from earlier in the chapter, verses 1 and 7. The Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. To your descendants I will give this land. God's last instructions to him were to go to the land that he had promised him. He didn't say, Go there and you'll find milk and honey. He didn't say anything like that. He just said, Go to that land. Uh, And the idea is that I'll give you more instruction once you do that. Abram went, but he found himself facing a famine. The difficult circumstances he faced in the land were by themselves not a sufficient reason for him to move. Going down into Egypt to avoid a famine was not a part of God's leading. It was a natural choice on Abraham's part in order to get out from under difficult circumstances he found himself in. I I hate to give examples because sometimes you hear this in a wrong way. You have to pray this through. But uh, a lot of times over the years, people have talked to me and I've been in this situation myself where you just you're you're maybe in a job that is difficult all of a sudden. Maybe it started off as a great job. Uh, You were excited to get it. You felt like it was the answer to prayer. But now you've got a different supervisor, different personnel. Something's changed. And, and your first thought is, I have to get out of here and get another job. And, and you can do that. And, you, and that might be God's leading. If he's leading you in that, that has to do with your personal relationship with him. But just because you're in difficult circumstances at work, you can't get along with the people that you work with all of a sudden, that is not a sufficient reason to get another job unless God opens the door for that. And this is an area where we have so many resources and so many opportunities that we can usually get another job if we really want one and leave that circumstance behind. And it could be that God says, I'm going to bring you a severe famine of nice people at work. And you're going to have to be the only Christian and you're going to have to endure and you're going to have to show people what it's like to be a real Christian in a terrible situation. You say, yeah, Lord, I didn't sign on for that. I'm into the milk and honey. I'm a milk and honey. That's my diet. 
maybe some Melba toast, but milk and honey on in top of it and stuff. And, and so, you know, it, it's an important consideration. God, are you really releasing me to get the new job, to go into the new situation? Or am I just unwilling to trust you in it and face it with you? By the way, on another, from another angle, it made sense for him to go to Egypt. If Abraham had called you, he, you know, you're back in Ur, the Chaldees, and he said, he, you know, calls you and says, hey, Gene, you know, I'm, I'm down. Hey, how you doing there, Abe? You know, what's going on? And, and I got to the land flowing with milk and honey and there's a famine. Really? That's weird. I thought God led you there. Yeah, he did, but there's a famine. So I'm thinking about going to Egypt. Oh, is there food down there? Yeah, there's tons of food. Hey, go for it. Got to feed your family. And we're always apt to give the counsel that makes the most logical sense to somebody before we even pray about it half the time. Now, you don't have to always give the counsel that makes the most illogical sense either, but sometimes you do have to tell people, hey, don't you think this might be the very situation God wants to test your faith in? How about we just be patient and kind and loving and gentle and return blessing for insult and stuff like that? You're breaking up. I can't hear you. No one wants to hear that and no one wants to say that. Uh, but, you know, we're a spiritual people pursuing a spiritual walk. And I think it's pretty clear with Abraham, he ought to have just stayed there and saw how God was going to provide for him. So what were God's last instructions to you? It's important that you remember them. You may soon find that the land that seems so promising has a famine in it. Difficult circumstances are not sufficient in themselves for you to move. Whether you remain faithful in difficult circumstances or take a disastrous excursion into Egypt can depend upon your confidence in what God said to you. Now, Egypt is, of course, a real place, but it also has symbolic meaning to believers. In Isaiah chapter 31, verse 1, we read this. The Lord is speaking. He says, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong but who do not look to the Holy One of Israel, nor seek the Lord. And so Egypt symbolizes a dependence upon the world or upon ourselves rather than looking to the Lord for His help and leading. It symbolizes the natural, logical ways to relieve pressure, but it is not the spiritual way and any excursion to Egypt apart from God's leading, will take its toll. Verse 11, came to pass when he was close to entering Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, Indeed, honey, I know that you are a beautiful woman with a beautiful countenance. Wow! Man, she has herself quite a catch there. What a man. Therefore, it's going to happen when the Egyptians see you, they're going to say, that's his wife. They'll kill me. And they'll let you live. So say you're my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake, that I may live because of you. Jerk. (laughs) So Sarai is Sarah. She's also going to get her new name. She would have gotten the senior citizen discount at Denny's. She's old. She's an old lady. But she was blessed with some kind of amazing, almost unusual beauty. Or maybe she was cursed with it. You know, it's not always a blessing to be beautiful. I've found that in my life. Uh, Let's see. (laughs) A little bit of a delayed reaction there. The truth is, we, 
and maybe I hear this, I, you know, this doesn't hit everybody, but hear what I'm saying. We try to encourage girls, especially by telling them that it's the inner beauty that matters. And if you're not careful, it comes across as a concession to girls that aren't very attractive. We almost think, you know, well, you're not very attractive, so work on that inner beauty, okay? And yet the truth is, I think the girls that need the more inner beauty are the, the really attractive girls. Because they go through life kind of getting attention and getting everything they want. And if they're not careful, they let that inner beauty slide. And they never really get to that inner beauty. Because they're dependent on what is outward. Sarah, who we see is so beautiful, is uh, applauded in the New Testament by Peter for her inner beauty. Now the commentators seem to be in agreement that Abraham's life was really in jeopardy. This wasn't just something he was making up. In the culture of that time, there was a real possibility he would be killed, uh, especially as a stranger. Interesting, he went to Egypt to save his life, all the while knowing that he could lose his life if they found out that Sarah was his wife. It's crazy when we come up with our own logical way to solve our trouble, it often is filled with fatal flaws. And so Abraham says, there's a famine here. I'm going to die if I don't eat. So let's go to Egypt where there's food and where I might die. But I can overcome that by a little bit of a lie here, a little bit of hypocrisy, a little bit of hiding. And so it begins to snowball. And so he's no better off in Egypt than he was in Canaan. In fact, he's worse off spiritually because now he's a liar. The custom in those times was to negotiate a dowry with the father or brother of the woman you wish to take as a wife. If the Egyptians saw that Abraham was Sarah's husband, he reasoned they might murder him as her brother. They might approach him and ask for her hand. And then he would have a long time to negotiate. These are those kind of crazy Middle Eastern negotiations where you later on, Abraham is going to want to buy a burial plot. Great negotiation. He comes, he says, I want to buy this plot. And they say to him right from the beginning, no, we're going to give it to you. It's yours. Take it. They don't mean that. It's clear as you read the whole narrative that that's just the beginning of negotiations. That's just what you said. If you said that to an American, all right, I'm on it. And then you would be offended and they'd cut your head off and, and stuff. But so there's all this. So he figured, okay, they're going to, maybe they won't notice how beautiful Sarah is, but if they do, they'll approach me. I'll have time to negotiate. We'll never get to the promised price. And by that time, maybe the famine will be over. And so he's buying himself some time. Sarah was indeed a half sister to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 20, verse 13, he'll go on record saying that he asked Sarah to participate in this half-truth everywhere they went. They're going to have this same thing happen again. It was kind of their cover story while wandering through the land. Do we sometimes have a cover story? I think we are tempted to whenever we don't want to appear as though our lives are somewhat foolish because we've chosen to walk with the Lord. We can do this among non-believers, but also in conversations with believers. Maybe a more modern term would relate to you. Bill O'Reilly calls this spin, doesn't he? We put a certain spin on something to make it sound uh, as appealing as possible. I know when I go to, for example, in my little life, when I go to pastor's conferences, you know, everybody wants to ask you. I mean, there's only so many questions you can ask a person. And one of them is, you know, how big is your church? 
And, and that, you know, and that, that's, then right then you're pigeonholed, you know, and, and, and so, or what's happening at your church. And one of the standard spin answers is, well, God is really developing a maturity in our people. That means we're not growing numerically, we're only growing spiritually. And you know, there's nothing wrong with that. And that may be true, but we, we always spend, you know, nobody ever says, man, I'm, I'm dying up there. You've got to help me. Please get me out of there. You know, I mean, it's like, okay, excuse me. I'm sorry for asking. Uh, you know, and, and so, and we, we all tend to do that. We do it with our family sometimes because your family thinks you're some crazed Jesus freak fanatic. And God's showing you all this amazing stuff and then your, your mom or dad who's not a Christian or your brother says, so what's going on with you, Jesus freak? And you spin it, you give a little cover story to it to show how successful you are in the spiritual realm when in reality you're falling apart, you know, and that kind of thing. So we, we do this sometimes. Abraham was right about the Egyptians wanting Sarah, verse 14. So it was when Abram came into Egypt... The Egyptians saw the woman that she was a, a knockout. I mean, she was just beautiful. The princes of Pharaoh saw her and commended her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. Abraham didn't consider that Sarah might catch the eye of the Pharaoh. No lengthy negotiations prior to Pharaoh taking her. He just came, he got her, and he said, you tell me what you want for, and I'll have a camel bring it. There's not going to be any negotiation. And so now we've got some problems. Verse 17, But the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, Jerk, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? I might have taken her as my wife. Now, therefore, here is your wife. Take her and go. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away and his wife and all that he had. Uh, the non-believing Pharaoh acted better than the believing pilgrim. People often compare their works of righteousness with those of Christians, and they do come out looking better. Sometimes people in the world act more moral. They just are better people in one sense. They're still not saved. And that's the problem. We're not talking about works of righteousness or being a little bit better or being a nice person or, you know, I did more good than you. We're talking about whether or not a person, when they take their last breath, is going to be in heaven or in hell. And when we get to the nitty-gritty, when we get to where J. Vernon McGee says the rubber meets the road, it's never by any works of righteousness that we have done. It's only by what we believe. And so... I can do works of righteousness my entire life. I can outshine every Christian in my neighborhood in terms of being a, a good person. But if I haven't believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, all of my works of righteousness are like filth before the Lord. They're not sufficient to save me. However, all I need to do is believe. And then God will declare me righteous. He will justify me I will be just as if I'd never sinned. He will change my heart and give me a new heart and a new nature and put His Spirit within me. If you haven't done that, there's no works of righteousness that can appeal to God other than the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and you need to get saved. The challenge of his circumstances seemed too great for Abraham's faith, so he chose to alter them rather than remain at the altar. 
The result was a disastrous excursion into Egypt during which he compromised his testimony, his marriage, and his integrity. The challenge of your circumstances is going to be great sometimes. It's all too possible for you to choose to alter your circumstances. There's always an Egypt to which you can flee. Don't do it. When you do find yourself in Egypt, take heart. When you are faithless, God remains faithful. In verses 1 through 4, pressure relief should be sought by sacrificing at your altar. The Beatles gave good advice when they sang, get back to where you once belonged. All right. (laughs) Hang on. Get rid of Beatles reference. All right. Abraham returned to the promised land, to Bethel, and significantly to the place of his altar. Verse 1, then Abram went up from Egypt and he and his wife and all that he had and lot with him to the south. One commentator wrote, back to Bethel is the rallying cry for all who have wandered from the Lord. And so if if you've wandered from the Lord, if there's something going on in your life and you need to come back to the Lord, then get back to Bethel, which is back to the place where God and you last had really close, intimate fellowship. And this is a spiritual getting back. It's not a physical place that you need to go to. But spiritually, just go back to God and he will meet you there. Abraham was very rich in livestock, silver and gold. Wait a minute. You mean that Abraham avoided the famine and came out of Egypt far wealthier than he was before? Yes. When we are in Egypt, we seem to be prospering and we can even think that it is God prospering us because we are so resourceful. So Abraham, he's famine, goes to Egypt All of a sudden, he's gaining in gold, he's gaining in livestock, he's gaining in material things. There's a temptation to think maybe this wasn't such a bad idea after all. Well, wait a minute. Spiritually speaking, it was a terrible idea because you've lost your testimony. You're a liar. You can't go around talking about the living God. You've lost your personal integrity and you're going to lose your family. Your wife is now in Pharaoh's harem getting ready to become his wife. They're making preparation. Livestock and silver and gold are no substitute for the testimony of a godly man who leads his family in the ways of the Lord. I've known people. I I mean, I don't know when people are making bad decisions. I'm not the decision police. I have enough trouble with my own decisions. But in retrospect, I've seen some people who've made bad decisions And they start to prosper in the world. And then, sadly, the the saddest part to me is their family falls apart. Because no matter how much you think you might need something bigger and better and more and more successful and all that, what you really need is, is the things that money can't provide. And that is love and uh, fealty and faithfulness among the family. And you can have that anywhere. You don't, you don't have to have more to have that. And so a lot of times people, they give up the spiritual to gain the material, hoping to get more spiritual down the road, but they get down the road with less people in their entourage as their family falls apart. Now, when we sin, God's grace abounds, but we should never conclude that we ought to sin so that it will I'm certain that when we talk to Abraham in heaven, he's going to tell us he regrets the time he spent in Egypt. It was a spiritual setback on his path. Verse 3, he went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai to the place of the altar, which he had made there at first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. So here he's back with his tent 
at his altar. But wait a minute, it's not said that he came to the altar, but to the place where it had stood. It's possible it was no longer standing. Maybe it fell by itself from disrepair. Maybe it had been destroyed by the Canaanites. Maybe it was demolished by Abraham himself before he left for Egypt. We don't know. Now, we don't build altars anymore because Jesus is the once-for-all sacrifice for our sin. But we do read in the New Testament, we are living sacrifices to the Lord. Our lives, every aspect of our lives, both material and physical and spiritual, are to be dedicated to worshiping Him and serving Him. And therefore, we can still suffer from disrepair and destruction and demolition as living sacrifices. Living sacrifices fall into disrepair when, for example, we withhold things that God is asking from us. Living sacrifices can be destroyed, for example, by too much compromise with the world. Living sacrifice can be demolished by our own decisions. Sometimes we tear down our own altar. We've been walking with the Lord, we're serving the Lord, and we destroy our ministry or our family or whatever it would be with our own two hands by the decisions that we make, by our failure to watch and guard our hearts and lives. Now, I see Abraham standing where his altar had once stood, reflecting upon his excursion into Egypt, realizing that he ought to have remained in the land, realizing that the famine was a test of faith. How would God respond? Well, there in the rubble he had made of his altar, God met him as Abraham saw him. He found that God had not changed at all. His word had not changed. His promises didn't even change. God didn't say to him, well, Abraham, you you failed your first big test and now you failed your second test. I think I'm going to get another guy. Just, you know, you're second class. I I can't hang with you anymore. No, Abraham found that God hadn't changed at all. His word had not changed. His promises had not changed. And that he could simply build another altar and continue on his pilgrim journey all the stronger from it. I don't want to be Abraham in Egypt. Do you? Of course not. Therefore, unless you have a compelling spiritual leading to alter circumstances, don't do it. Embrace them. Endure them as a good soldier of Jesus Christ until God releases you. Be the living sacrifice. Amen? Let's pray.